Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Good evening, everyone. Hi, my name is Janelle Riley. I'm so happy to welcome you to the SAG After Foundation conversation with Haley Atwell. Uh, whether sporting a corset in period films like The Duchess or Brideshead Revisited or kicking ass as Agent Peggy Carter, this is an actress I love to see on screens and on stage. Uh, you can currently catch her sublime work in the critically acclaimed BBC miniseries Howard's End on Stars. Please welcome Haley Atwell. Thank you Hello. so much for being here. Welcome oh, to America. Pleasure, thank you. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm half American. Right, your dad. So, yes, despite the accent, I am actually, I've got American citizenship, which I'm very proud of. And you so. spent summers in yeah, America, right? In, Is in that Kansas true? City, yeah, oh, wow, growing that's up. so interesting. Yeah, and of course, I would, oh yeah, Casey, fantastic. Um, and I, I found when I, when I got there, I became more British, because that was kind of like an added currency, <laughs> my popularity. And, uh, and it was great. And then when I come back to this, come back to school in September in London, of course, I'd have a little bit of an American twang because I'd be in, in the States where my dad's from. <laughs> like I was, and I, there was such a little actress, kind of so chameleonic, completely dependent upon my environment. Like, what skills can I use to get myself popular? Wherever you went, you could be exotic. I, yeah, I suppose so. Or just kind of an outsider. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's the thing I do find about. Being, being an actor, uh, I, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't showy kid. I wasn't a very confident kid, um, very sensitive, uh, in, quite introverted, only child. But I found um, that kind of outsider observant quality served me well a bit later on. Oh, sure. Um, and, and weirdly found that actors that I tended to, whose work I tended to follow, tended to be slightly more introverted people in real life, really? which was kind of a bit of a revelation. I just thought all actors were, you know, the life and soul of the party, and that wasn't always the case. No, I can assure you it is not. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived with my fair share of actors. <laughs> um, uh, I am curious, though, because uh, you were born and raised mostly in England, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you didn't have, like, family in the business. When did you no. first you know, kind of stumble upon acting? Um, well, I think it was, my my mom always used to take me to the theatre. I mean, luckily being brought up in the centre of London and having a theatre being so accessible uh, and affordable back then, anyway, <laughs> um, that, that it was possible to go to, you know, the theatre above a pub or a community centre or, um, or the, of course, the West End and, and get, you know, standby tickets or whatever. And, I found from, I think, quite an early age, that experience of going into an environment where you're strangers, pretty much, and the lights go down and everyone gets very quiet and it's all very intense. And then for however long you're taken on this journey with people on stage who you don't know, but by the end of it, they've in some way in that moment changed you or had an experience of something, a connection of something, whether you've been moved or you've been kind of enraged by something, your mind's been open to something. And I just thought that there was such magic in it. I didn't know what my place in it could be. Um, 
I, I thought that, especially in particular, the women that I would see on stage seemed to be these kind of fully formed, extraordinary powerhouses that were able to convey an emotion to a stranger that makes you feel like you're in some way part of this journey, this imaginative world. Um, and so I think it just kind of appealed to that in me. And, um, and yeah, and my, I think, you know, both my parents were very um, into theatre as a kind of, I suppose, in some ways, a spiritual form. There's something quite magical about it, something kind of otherworldly that I think um, that drew me to it, you know, and, and it just never left. Do you remember some of those early plays that had an impact on you or some of the actors that yeah. you first saw? Um, oh gosh, so many. So I remember seeing, when I was 11, I think seeing Ray, Fli Ray Fiennes in Hamlet in the West oh, End. Oh, wow. And he, I think, he, I think he's already on stage when the audience come in and he's got his back to the audience and he's wearing this like leather coat. He's got this kind of long hair. My mom <laughs> was a huge Ray Fiennes fan at the time. Um, and there, and that, that was kind of, I think, particularly a standout point. But then also a lot of Theatre de Complicité's work, Simon McBurney. So Street of Crocodiles and Mnemonic and um, things like the Tiger Lilies doing Shock-Headed Peter and um, Cloud Street at the National Theatre. Um, uh, these are kind of literally just coming to mind. I haven't, I haven't kind of practiced. <laughs> I haven't, haven't rehearsed any of this, but um, just, gosh. And then seeing, I suppose, um, Fiona Shaw on stage and oh, wow. uh, Juliet Stevenson and Helen McCrory, um, of course, Judy Dench going to up to Stratford and seeing shows at the RSC and feeling that it was very much part of the British heritage and the, the culture. And I felt there was some kind of kind of connection to the past and what what great playwrights and, and of course, Shakespeare had given us was this vocabulary of, of trying to explore the human condition that still translates 400 years later. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> was there a moment when you said like I want to do this or I can do this or were you just enjoying that? I still hobby? don't know if I can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have many moments of really wondering. <laughs> uh, I think that seems to be the case for a lot of people in oh, the industry. Sure. Um, and I think a healthy form of a healthy amount of self-doubt is good. Uh, it's always, you know, if you come you come out fully formed out of drama school going, I'm going to make a profound contribution to the arts. <laughs> you're probably not. You know, you're probably not. Um, Get ready for me. It was, yeah, it was, the drama school was great in that way because I, I didn't, um, I was so shy and I didn't know if I could do it. And I worked really hard and graduating drama school felt like the beginning mm. of what is now for me less of a career and more of an apprenticeship and a feeling Still, of, yeah, very that? much so, very much so. And I think every time I start a job, I'm not sure what I'm doing. And it, it, it requires something else, um, a different either preparation or you're working with someone else who's got a very you know, different way from working as a previous director did or um, someone, another actor who might have a very specific process different to your own. It's, it, you're constantly having to remain present to the circumstance you find yourself in, um, which is why I don't have a particular technique, a, a kind of list of things I do um, to get ready. It completely depends upon the project itself. I was actually curious about that because I read in an interview that I, I, the actual terminology is you were offered entry 
to Oxford University, mm -hmm. and you were going to study um, theology and philosophy. Mm. But you think you purposely botched mm. your entrance? Mm -hmm. Ex mm -hmm. Is it an exam? Mm -hmm. or? Um, you, you're offered. I mean, yeah, it's you're, you're <laughs> offered a conditional offer based on exa examinations and predicted grades and um, three days of har like harrowing interviews where three you go and days. stay up there and you do like rounds of it and exams and and then you get a conditional offer. It's not even a, like well done, you're in. It's if you get these results in your exams, you're you're in. Um, and I didn't want it. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want it because I, I thought it would have been a waste of a, sp a place at this mm -hmm. the, the best university in the world. How I considered it back then, and I also knew that um, I don't think I would have lasted three years doing something that was going to be. Uh, d d a very incredibly um, difficult, hardworking. Uh, time when really I, I knew I was wanting to go into theatre anyway, so it just seemed. Um, it's the, I, I felt slightly pushed into it from my school, going, "You can, you're, you're, you've got an analytical brain. You let's let's you know let's go and study Descartes." And, um, <laughs> yeah. did, did you knowingly botch it, or is it upon reflection you realize like I didn't? Really I think it's work a bit of both. It. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing at eighteen. I just don't yeah. know what I'm doing now. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's only in retrospect you go, "Oh, that was an interesting choice." I made that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a choice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I heard that you you spent some time traveling the world, and you worked for a casting director. Yeah. So the the um, this was a thing a really useful uh, thing to do quite early on, which was I was a runner for a casting director. So I would you know make the tea, and and I got lucky enough to be able to help him audition actors coming in. So I'd sit in all, in these audition rooms and. I would read opposite an actor coming in to read for a part, and I'd often be sat next to the casting director and a producer and a director of whatever the project was. And I would always be um, really surprised with the feedback once the actor had left the room. You feel it's great because you get to know, like, oh, yeah, tell us. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what are they really Hello? saying? Well, yeah, what they're really saying is going, I think she should have brown hair. Either someone has done something incredible or brilliant or unique or something so different to what feels like is just an obvious choice on the page. And, you know, I remember a couple of people leaving the room and I'm going like, oh my God, well, they've got it. I mean, I, I would have offered, I mean, let's just do it now. Let's offer it to them now. We should have filmed it. I mean, it's in the can. Um, and it would be something so unbelievably mundane or... Um, nothing personal to that person and they would often go wow what they were so impressive anyway uh, and then and then it would be someone else um and and so i think what it did is gave me a taster of knowing that the audition process is not personal mm -hmm. uh, and if you go in prepared then you you know that you've done what you could do and then it's out of your hands and um i think it helped for me to 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 kind of be able to endure relentless rejection without wanting to harm myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pe people say that, but it, it's such a valuable insight into how the business works. And we, we we're constantly told it's not personal, but it just feels personal. Of course it is. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I'm happy that we can get into it here because you guys will all understand this is obviously things I wouldn't want to say in certain publications that would make me sound kind of pretentious or like really nerdy. But, um, you know, the truth that I think to be an actor is really brave. So brave. And even, you know, when they, they talk about public speaking being seeming now still is the, number, the one or number two biggest fear for people. And yet, you know, we've chosen to do this as a profession and to put ourselves out there to expose ourselves in some way. And there's, you know, many 
thesis of why we do that and is it you know do we is it the love we longed for, to have as a child or is it just that we're kind of narcissistic I mean it doesn't matter <laughs> the point is the act itself of doing that can at times be absolutely terrifying and I do remember feeling having blocks uh, especially early on um, of in some way not connecting to either the director I was working with in audition or the material itself but but really struggling in an audition and and feeling terrified that this would be the end of it of going if I can't break through this if I can't get a job then I'm gonna have to figure out something else to do and it was the only thing I ever wanted to do and um, and that's really scary it's high mm -hmm. it's high stakes I think it always is high stakes and I still when I meet actors who are incredibly famous and successful and yet when you get into it there is still that level of I don't know when I'm gonna work again next yeah or I don't know whether or not I'm just taking roles that are given to me because it's just putting me in a comfort zone and I'm actually not really offering anything new to the, to the world I'm, I'm basically doing um, a, a repetitive repeat of some a, a, you know something that's worked and that's allowed me to pay the bills which absolutely is a valid reason mm -hmm. to do it but you know if you're wanting to be an artist and you're wanting to evolve and you want to kind of be next to the people that you admire because it awakens and stimulates you in, in, in terrifying and thrilling ways, then you're constantly on the edge of, of pushing yourself out of that comfort zone into, into territories which can be emotionally very exposing and make you feel vulnerable and having to pick yourself up after that experience, knowing that people might not read it, people might not want it, and, you, you know, or, or worse, people might ridicule it and mock it and it's um it's why do we do it it's insane <laughs> it's insane it is so brave it's serious i know people who have you know given up on acting because they can't handle and auditioning is so different than actually performing so it just feels foreign to sort of be in a room you know, with one person. Yeah, this, I, I, I still struggle with um, with auditions because the, the format feels like nothing to do with what actually happens when you get the job. Um, and theater as well as TV and film, but especially if there is that sense of, I, I, str I don't, <sighs> hmm, how do I say this? I, I remember kind of starting out going, I don't, I, I went to a couple of auditions and the experience was so horrid that I felt it was actually detrimental. And if I carried on, putting myself through that in that system in that way, I knew I wouldn't be getting the jobs anyway and I'd become resentful to the process and I loved the art of it and the artistry of it that I didn't, I was like, how do I marry, how do I um, allow, you know, how do I, I want to get to the art but I have to go via this kind of slightly cold corporate world of, of yeah. um, this cattle call feeling and you walk into an audition and everyone's just a better looking version of you and they've gone <laughs> to the hairdressers and you're like, I'm playing a police officer. Why have you gone and gotten yourself looking like a little sexy lady? Like it, it just, you know, and, and you know that and the atmosphere in a in an audition when you can pick up on other people's nervousness mm. or like oh you're here gets you yeah, hi and you kind of sense that there's like and as actors we're we're so aware of the nuance of subtext within an environment you know i, I felt that my sensitivity as a kid was detrimental but now i see it as a gift that I've had to to use, but also take care of, mm -hmm. because I can walk into a room and feel very aware of the atmosphere that I'm picking up, and the you know, and I'm so I'm observant of people, so I can tell if what the agenda, if there is an agenda, mm -hmm. not necessarily what it is, but there if there's an edge to something, and that's that's as an actor fantastic because it means you can play subtext, which is that's where all the good stuff, all the great juicy bits happen, not in what is said, but what is not said, um, and. 
but in doing that, it just meant that if I went into an audition and I felt uh, intimidated by the environment, I found it very hard to emotionally open myself to it. Um, and, and that was especially early on something I really struggled with. And so I, I kind of was bold enough to make some kind of choices about personal boundaries about what I would do and what I wouldn't do. Um, and I found in doing that, it wasn't like I was, like if there was some auditions, I thought, you know, I, I, I went and auditioned with that person and, or I, I, I'm aware of that material and I know I'm, I don't necessarily seem to have a voice yet or any kind of leverage here to have an opinion, but uh, I do have one and it's, I don't want to do this. And, um, and I, would, I wouldn't do that because I knew going in it, going into something that would put me in a, an environment that mm -hmm. would make me clam up, I knew it was going to be detrimental later on to, you know, what I felt I knew I wanted to give. Um, feels all kind of cryptic what I'm saying, but I guess, I, I'm hoping you're kind of following me a little bit. But I do feel that, you know, there is this sense when actors especially come out of drama school and because everyone loves it so much and it's such a passion for people and yet the stakes are so high because so many people love it and so the, there aren't as many parts and there's all this competition and all that kind of fear surrounding it that it's, um, you know, you've got to tread carefully. But I felt that the, the way of, the only way I was going to last is if I was going to have some kind of dignity and self-respect mm -hmm. around how, you know, how I wanted to work within an audition. And if I felt bullied or if I felt that person, I was just one of many, you know, if I, was felt, if, if I felt invisible in an audition, I, I'd kind of politely thank, you know, say thank you and leave or not, just not, not go. And actually realizing that in my powerlessness, I was still able to mm -hmm. have some sort of a voice it made me feel quite empowered and I started to have more confidence in my abilities to communicate wow. um, and, and to be honest. Because that's all, ultimately, isn't it, what it is, is some of the greatest performances that you see are performances that are not clever and they're not technically brilliant necessarily, some are, but there's, there's just honesty there. There's a human connection that we relate to, no matter what the backdrop of the story is or what the circumstance of those characters' lives are. Um, it's, and it's that connection that that I want, that I, I see in other uh, performances, I go, that to me is what this is all about. And when I perform myself, I'm hoping to have those moments of connection with the audience as well, where you're kind of crossing those barriers of, of kind of time and space and circumstance and society and just as human to human, just having a shared moment and having glimpses of that, which are so tender and so joyful. You go, that's what I'm in it for. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, you were are way ahead of me because it took me a long time to, only in the last two years, honestly, uh, to sort of realize the power of saying no, mm -hmm. of being able to say like, no, I don't want to do this or I'm going to withdraw from this. How old were you when you sort of realized you could do that? It's an ongoing thing, isn't it? Yeah. And you don't know until you're testing it out here and there. And I didn't have a, I, I think, it's a big conversation. I think um, one thing that I, I think I feel quite strongly about is um, it's possible to have a good time and be really nice to people and what a concept right yeah <laughs> and do really good work and I remember having dinner with Meryl Streep I'm sorry who Meryl Streep pick that up for me I'm sorry. <laughs> the actress Meryl Streep <sighs> the three-time Academy Award winner she's a goddess really isn't she um and I came away from that day, it was a social kind of dinner, it wasn't a, and she wasn't on, she wasn't working, you know, there wasn't, it was a private thing, but she, um, I came away going, if Meryl Streep can be that present, gracious, chilled out, down to earth, interested in the people that she was having dinner with, 
there's no excuse for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen glimpses of it, especially in films, especially with younger actors. I hate to say it more with Americans than English. I think English, we tend to, there's a bit of a reverence for the work and less for ourselves. We take the work seriously, but not ourselves. And so the drama school training is very much about the discipline of the craft rather than the need for a kind of one's own status or celebrity, I suppose. Um, that's just a very general observation, that I, kind of horrible thing to say, but anyway, it's my experience. It was my yeah, truth, I, it's my I experience. Have no, I have no trouble with um, it. But, 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 but noticing that going, there's really, there's, there's um, I find that the, some of the best work happens when the room is, uh, the creativity comes from being relaxed. When you see kids playing and having a good time and how free their imagination is to come up with all sorts of extraordinary impossible things um, because they're kind of relaxed within their bodies and they don't feel judged or self-conscious. And I find doing that in, a, in an ensemble in theater or especially in Howard's End, um, we did that a lot because we were kind of on the same page with that, that it is possible just to have a really great working environment and produce good work. And when that was when that was on offer to me all of a sudden, and that comes from time of watching other people, you know, what, one of the things I've done from day one is just, if I see someone doing something I like, I steal it. <laughs> Shamelessly. I might even just repeat what exactly what they've said, the way that they've said it, if I think that's fab, you know, and I, yeah. And that's what we do. That's what, you know, we relate to each other and we, we steal off each other. Um, but I think I kind of just, it just meant that if I was in an environment that uh, I remember being younger and feeling like I could allow myself to be pushed around a little bit or allow myself to be in a slightly kind of a hierarchy of a set or whatever, that, that I just, now that I'm older, I don't want that to be the case for me, for anyone working with me, particularly younger people coming into this industry. Um, so yeah, it's a big conversation. I'm kind of going all about the houses around with it, but... Um, no, yeah. I don't like this idea that you have to suffer for art. No, it this is the thing. Crazy. Absolutely. I thought if I was going to put my own mental health at risk and all my own personal relationships, take my work home with me and suffer in silence because I was so deep and meaningful, um, that I, I thought that was like, yeah. you know. You're an artiste. The opposite. Yeah. The opposite. And when you see other people do it, kind of having a laugh, having a, I would say having a family, having a, a personal life where they can shut off. Mm -hmm talking about the bloody industry for one second, all their art for one second, and just were present in the environment that they found themselves in, offset, what best the good work was happening. And it, um, it, that was a relief. Now, I don't know if you guys relate to that, but that feeling of like, you commit to it so much and in drama school, it's all so consuming that you just all wanna be so kind of tortured. <laughs> and then when I discovered like a well-adjusted person happened to be brilliant, I was, yeah. I was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, but they must go home and cry. <laughs> and then I'd be like, yeah, but I'm the one going home and crying because yeah. I'm giving myself a really hard time because I'm like taking myself so seriously. I mean, it is, there's that old, you know, Laurence Olivier to Dustin Hoffman. Try acting. Yeah, yeah. it's called acting. Yeah. Like, maybe it shouldn't be so torturous. I don't think it should be torturous. I especially don't think it should be torturous for other people. I right. think that's really unprofessional, actually. And I think that we're, we're we have been in a, in a very, uh, this very suspicious kind of um, and dangerous belief system that um, the way that some actors treat other actors because they're going through their own process mm -hmm. is behavior that no other industry would put up with. And why should we? It's absolutely, it's disgraceful, I think. I think when having a process is fine, but when your process interferes with someone else's ability to just get on with their job, then, then it's your problem, and you've, you're not, you're not being, you're not an actor. 
or a director who thinks they have to abuse a performance out of someone. Completely, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I completely agree with that. I don't, I, don't, I have no interest in that. Yeah, uh, but it seems you went to Guildhall. I did. Yeah. Uh, School of Music yeah. and Art. Is that correct? Dr drama. Yeah. Um, drama. Yeah. And you mentioned, did they teach a specific method, or just a whole bunch of ones, and you um, kind of came up with your own? <laughs> no. So, uh, but Guildhall, Lambda, Rada, uh, Central, they. Um, Drama Centre, maybe less so, uh, but the the kind of say the main kind of London-based drama schools um, don't tend to have a particular process. But you will study Stanislavski, you will study the greats, the auteurs, the different um, techniques. So you'll do like Laban, um, you'll do clowning, you do um, you know uh, iambic pentameter, beating out the iambic till you're blue in the face, and. Um, uh, also, a lot of movement-based work from France, from like Jacques Lecoq, and um, what else? Uh, and improvisation comedy, and then you study a lot of classical plays, and you make you create devised pieces. And it's a very intense three-year course, but the idea is that in that way, in that over those three years, you're getting a sense and a taste of what is out there, to then hopefully give you some foundation for which to build your own process on mm. and taking a little bit from here and there. So there were some people that really, um, really responded to Stanislavski's method and found that that they took that within them with all the things that they then did for the rest of the course. And then you had other people who were, were using more Laban techniques and that were much more movement based and other people that were more kind of analytical and wanting to go into kind of making up the past of their character. And then you have uh, you know, te techniques like given circumstances and magic if and all this sort of thing. Um, and uh, you're kind of just, it's just like this kind of amazing um, selection of treats in, in a huge box of chocolates. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of pick and choose what, what works for you and mm. what you like. That sounds like so much better than insisting on one specific method. It, it's it right was, for everyone. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was for me. And, and I think there's sometimes there can be a retention around it. I mean, that's like, um, that, uh, I know some it, some people it works for and they need it and that's you know fantastic. Um, I'm kind of, kind of not that person. Um, I think th for me the the it, being practicing being present with another human being um, is the simplest explanation of what I think acting is. Uh, and in that presence, you're learning how to listen to each other and how to interact. Um, that for me is all acting is, and then, but practicing that takes a long time and it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we actually have a question from the audience um, from Danielle. Hey, you have Hello. very nice handwriting. Um, wants to know what's something you've learned over the course of your career that would have been helpful to have known when you were first starting? Um, that it's not personal, I suppose. Um, to relax, <laughs> I think learning how to relax is is kind of key. You know, thinking that if I had lots of tension in my body and I had a, you know gave myself a hard time that I would create uh, you know something fabulous to watch or you know something dramatic. But I actually I found that um, the opposite was true. Uh, that if I was relaxed, then it was more likely that the act, the audience could see and hear and feel and take in what I was saying and sharing with them. Um, I remember once at drama school with teachers, I was saying something like, what should, what should, what's my character like feeling here? 
And he was just like, well, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's what the audience should be feeling is a question you should be asking. Mm -hmm. what, what, do you want, what do you want the audience to experience in this moment? And actually taking the focus off my own inner process and more about what am I, what, making this a, a relationship uh, was a great way of kind of coming out of my own like mind, my own kind of inner landscape. Because that's what it is ultimately, mm -hmm. I think, isn't it? Acting with your, you're trying to take the inner landscape of a writer and have it sit within you so that you understand it and you connect with it emotionally and, and mentally and physically. But then ultimately you find a way to express it that then the audience can take something from. Um, and you're, you know, for want of better words, you're a vessel. <laughs> you're a channel of the truth. You can, you know, that you're, it's, it's something that's you're learning to live through you rather than for you. Um, kind yeah. of a strange question, mm -hmm. um, but I was curious, is it, is it different auditioning in England versus America, or are they pretty similar at the end of the day? Yeah, it depends on what it's for, yeah. really. Um, I would I imagine it's quite simple, similar, and, and it's pretty straightforward. Um, you have some, like, theatre auditions they will want you to prepare a piece um, and then obviously if it's film or TV sometimes you get the sides as you walk in I mean for the my first film was a Woody Allen film and I was given a paragraph of text and it was something along the lines of my car's broken down can you help do you have a spare tire I could borrow and I walked it, and I was like, I don't, what, what's, going, like, what's going on? And there was no circumstance around. I wasn't, there wasn't a sense of, well, who is she? And, and is she trying, what does she want from him? With the, the, has she really broken down? Or is just, is this a ploy to get you and McGregor? I mean, what's going on? Is this, is all, is, are these just kind of euphemisms or metaphors? Yeah. You know? And it was literally just like, no, just say the lines. He wants to know how you sound, how your voice sounds. Really? And you go, oh, it's okay. All right, there's not, that's, and the, the other thing I think I've kind of learned is to not overcomplicate anything, to just do what is asked of you in that moment, just say the line, um, say the line and allow the audience to hear that line. Um, and, I, and, the, and, and knowing that when you're going into do an audition, not having to give them more than they're asking of you, but just make a simple choice and, and deliver it, you know. So, uh, after, upon graduation, you started working in the industry pretty fast. I, I did, mean, yeah. I think within a year you booked Cassandra's Dream. Yeah, so I was, um, yeah, I think two weeks into graduation, I booked my first play, which was Prometheus Bound with David Yellowo, who remains a very important That's person your first in my play? life. Yeah. And your first movie is a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> and no, I mean, these are. But you never, I mean, but it's, yeah. it, it, you know, what's kind of odd is. And we'll talk about the, you know, the acting and the craft of it, but, um, you know, how someone's life is, we see it from the outside, is so different. Like my, my experience back then was it was like that there was this girl called Hayley Atwell. She kind of booked quite a few things. And uh, she looked like she's having a good old time. She's, I was like, whoever she is, she's very lucky. And I'm very jealous of her. Because this person who was experiencing it from the inside out, was overwhelmed and was nervous and was like, this is, if this is, this is great, but if it's happening too soon, does that mean that I'm just going to be found out? If this is, I haven't earned this yet. Oh my God. And then, you know, is it, is it because of my face and, and people are just going to see she's a flat, like a flash in the pack, like just neurosis, just, oh, you know, and, and I think that's, that's something to, you know, we, we live in a society that celebrates success. It celebrates beauty. It celebrates money. And it's not, it doesn't seem to be okay to have any other emotions apart from 
absolute kind of confidence and gratitude when those things seemingly come your way for a moment. But th- this is all just kind of a temporary, very glossed over kind of s- s- sound bites of life. And yeah. the ex- experience of it was, I wanted to be good at what I did. And I knew at that stage I was I was too new. I was too new, it was too much to learn. I had no idea what I was doing. I was only just understanding what hitting a mark was and what a, and a camera angle would pick up and therefore favoring one side of the actor's face rather than the other because the camera was there rather than the little technical thing. I had so much to learn that I was just like a rabbit in headlights, I think. and. Um, and I really, I just wanted to be good. And I was embarrassed that I wasn't yet. And I knew that I had a long way to go and I, that I still do. But I was doing it publicly. I was doing it in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that was really scary, you know? That was, I'd had the safety of drama school for three years uh, where you can make all these mistakes and take 10 steps back and only one step forward. And then to be given that those opportunities so early on are great but they can also, they, there is always a cost. Nothing is ever, I don't think, free. Every kind of experience will be a multi-layered one for you given your level of maturity or your circumstance. Did you get an agent while you were in school? Is that I did, you... I played Hedda Gabler in my third year. Oh, you're um, kidding. Yeah, wow. And that was actually great, uh, it unlocked something in me because I think up until that point, I'd always been, my teachers said, you're very good at being directed. Like I was a bit of a blank canvas and I could take direction really well, but I didn't, often know how to come up with a choice first. Oh, that's so um, interesting. Yeah, and, and I had a teacher when I was leaving, she said, just just know that you know, your, your strengths have really come from your ability to take direction, but it means that you're only ever gonna offer what the director is asking you to do. And when you go into an audition, they're not saying, this is how you do it. They're going, show me. So come up with something. And I, I, and I was, that was quite scary, but what was great playing Hedda Gabler was, uh, she was a messy, ugly, dis- really disturbed character. And I had spent two and a half years at drama school at that point wanting to be a really good actor. <laughs> I was practically a children's presenter, which is great, but it wasn't necessarily what I yeah. wanted to do. Um, and, I, you know, I was always, you know, they would say, like, you're very good at presenting a character to us, Haley, but it's we want to see your kind of, you know, we want to see something messy and real and kind of you know, um, a bit darker. And I think with Hedda Gabler, it was, I, I, I think it helped me access those sides of the, the spectrum of human emotion that before, especially as a young girl and, you know, wanting to be nice, um, that was, didn't feel like I was allowed at that point mm. to, or I didn't allow myself to explore in a safe environment. But one of the great things about acting and doing these plays is that it gives structure to very messy emotions and confusing emotions. And it gives a safety of the beginning, a middle and an end, knowing that you can do things and say things and experience things on a stage or on camera that you know on cut or when the curtains go down, everyone's gonna applaud you for it. They're not gonna go, she's crazy. We're not inviting her to the next party. (laughs) You know, you're safe, you're safe. You can have those big epic meltdowns and then be like, and congratulated for it. Going, it was so convincing how crazy you are. That's such a great role. Head was a great, it was a great role. And I, yeah, I really, I really loved her. I loved, I loved how, trapped she is you know Mm -hmm. she's bored out of her mind um and um and feels kind of this resentment to this 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 world telling her how lucky she is and she's married this man and she's got this house and she's got this and she's got that and she's dying inside she just you know it's not who she is and that feeling of 
that that disconnect between one's own inner landscape versus the reality of their life or the other people's supposed version vision of what that life is that to me was something that I could later you know I, I later certainly resonated with um, that's why yeah. I'm curious would you ever want to revisit that role yeah yeah oh yeah I love all those you know I, I love to do Therese Rakan and Lady Macbeth and Heather and all those darker roles I feel um, freer there yeah. actually I feel yeah Every mm -hmm. 10 years, you should do Head of Gobbler and, and see how it fits into That's your life. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> Who else would come and see it? <laughs> we can do it right here. We have eight, eight by ten feet. Has anybody got a gun? <laughs> In LA, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so that led you to getting an agent? Yeah, so uh, I got an agent and I went out to audition pretty much uh, every day after that and wow. I hated, hated it and there was of course there was I've been rejected from more things than I've gotten um, even though I've worked a lot there's been for you know every job that I've gotten there's been five or six things I didn't get you know that's the reality of it um, that's part of my story and that's something that I embrace and I make space for of knowing what that feels like and continue to feel um, but I was you know I was lucky enough to get Prometheus Bound the part of Io and she had been um, she, she'd been turned into a cow by Zeus. So I decided, so I was like, right, okay, what, wow, okay. How am I gonna do that? And we created these with bandages, like I bound my hands. Um, they kind of looked like hooves. And, and worked with David in this tiny theater in the West End, which is actually closed down now, the Sound Theater. Um, and he was chained um, and did the whole, he did his whole performance with a cloak with closed eyes. Um, until the last bit, it was just like the, the light shines on his face and he very slowly opens his eyes. And he blew my mind because he was so uh, clear and articulate and intelligent in his choices and um, kind to me. And uh, it took me under his wing and I, I loved the epic. I loved the, the, the big stories, the big emotions. We had this kind of belief that, that Io had been, um, she'd been sexually abused and that she had been, and that there was a, she was therefore suffering from, uh, she, you know, she had a, what do I, kind of like a psychological break. She'd had a breakdown and so she didn't see herself the way she actually was until she meets Prometheus and he, mm. he kind of gives her some sort of purpose. Um, it was a very intense experience, it was only, I think six weeks on, but um, that to me was, that's what I, where I came from and what I love doing. And again, if someone as talented as David Oyelowo can be nice, one of the nicest people in the world. So lovely. Everyone can, yeah, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you work with him again or? Um, no, we didn't. I mean, he's, he's yeah, we, we now have dinners. <laughs> we hang out as mates. Just with Meryl Streep? Meryl and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish my little fantasy head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, another film you did early on was Brideshead Revisited. Yeah. Uh, which is such a good adaptation. And um, again, I never believe anything I read on the internet, but I heard, I think I read an interview where you said the studio pressured you to lose weight. Well, God, it's such a boring conversation. <laughs> like, I'm so bored of it. Like, I'm an actor. I'm an actor. I'm not a model. Never wanted to be. Um, I, uh, there, you know, I think there was some some conversation about it. So I said no. Emma said if it's brought up again, I'll take it to the press. And we got on with our job. Emma Thompson intervened, yeah. is what I understand. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. That's a, that's someone good to have on your side. Yeah. <laughs> but she what she was great at doing is she would like she'd she'd get hampers of cheese and wine and send it to the accounts department saying, I know we never get to see you because you're in those windowless rooms in the kind of far end of the the you know the where we're shooting. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you so much for everything they're doing and thank you for paying us. And it was this the 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 camaraderie that of course would for her would have come from theatre background, mm-hmm. the ensemble taking care of each other, you know, and you're kind of all in it together. And um, Emma was great at doing that. Yeah. And if we would overrun, she'd bring pizza, she'd order pizzas for the whole crew. And um, she knew everyone's name, what they did, what their wives were called, what their husbands were called. If it was their birthday, she'd get a cake for them. And um, and then just, and, and be brilliant on action. And I was like, oh, this is like, there's what you do between action and cut, but there's yeah. also all this other stuff of how to, how to you know, it's a full-time job. Mm-hmm. You know, working with a, working with an ensemble, and again, if Emma Thompson could be nice, <laughs> yeah. no one else has any excuse. Yeah. Uh, there was another movie that I really noticed you in, which was The Duchess with Keira Knightley. I am so in love with that movie, and you earned a British Independent uh, Film Award nomination mm-hmm. for Best Supporting Actress. That was a, a it's a fantastic role in a big, beautiful costume piece. Did you find that it uh, had a positive impact on your career or? Yeah, I mean, that that came out of, because I'd worked on an adaptation of uh, The Line of Beauty in Alan Hollinghurst uh, book for the BBC. And the director of that was Saul Dip, who then cast me in The Duchess. And um, the part I played in that was quite a dark character. Mm. She's quite manipulative, quite quite damaged. And she was, which is manic depressive. And um, he had said, he'd said, I think along the lines, so kind of, I, I was getting a sense that directors said, kept saying to me, "You're really good at uh, thinking on screen. There's there's a lot going on without you having to say anything." And I kind of was like, "Yeah, I'm terrified. I'm going." How do I, how do I do? <laughs> but you know, it's a bit like you know when Lauren McCall she talks about how, you know, that first when you see her, she's got the head down, yeah. and she's and we're like, "Wow, it's so such a powerful entrance." And she was like, "It was the only way I could stop my kind of whole face from vibrating with nerves was just to like, and all these things that she did to make herself feel calm, was in fact, you know, uh, looks just like she's yeah. making some amazing character choice. Like it's not good, <laughs> um, but yeah. So the Duchess was a similar thing. You know, she's a, a woman who." Um, steals her best friend's man, yeah. essentially. But she, there's a kind of a love triangle in that. And uh, essentially, it's the, there's nothing that she won't do for her children. And by having a relationship with the Duke, he will grant her access to her children. That's kind of where it came from. So I think I think quite early on, I was interested in uh, quite complicated characters. I mean, I, I'm also, the, char- the characters I grew up really loving or being mesmerized by were the slightly difficult ones, the kind of anti-heroes the um you know like i loved like dead man walking and the short you know the 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 kind of like how can you how can there be redemption for a man that has done these awful things to someone and yet i'm i'm it's it's calling on me to kind of expand my empathy or my ability to tolerate human beings in all their dark facets you know And, and um and also think the work of the Earlier work of Lars von Trier, Breaking the Waves. <laughs> I just saw his new movie, so I'm so I'm with so you. I'm so sorry. I, I haven't seen it, but uh, from things that he said, they're questionable. I think yeah. it posts me to you, you can't carry on like that. But um, Breaking the Waves, for example, oh. being, I don't know if you yeah. guys know, know it, uh, the very complicated story of a 
uh, a woman who is incredibly innocent and naive and marries this man who has an accident and says to her, I want you to go out and sleep with men in the village and come back and tell me about it as a way that you and I can have some sort of a sexual uh, relationship because he, he was uh, paralyzed. Mm -hmm. What a premise. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's so tender and beautiful yeah. and plausible in a way. And, you're, and I was left feeling so uncomfortable about my feelings around it that that to me is, that's interesting to me. And that things that really challenge my, my moral compass a little bit, or um, at Tyrannosaur, another one with that um, Peter Mulligan did, um, Peter Mulligan and, and uh, Paddy Considine di wrote and directed that was, it. That's a rough one. With Olivia yeah. Colman, yeah. That's really, really, th that tough stuff is kind of where I like to sit. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's richer for me. Um, Were you a dancer in the dark van? Yeah, I was, I yeah. love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Would you work with Lars von Trier? Or? Not now, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could get in a time machine and go back to... It's the great thing about kind of having a few years in this industry. Yeah. I mean, and just being like, no, not going to work with them again. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. And not going, not... Because it used to be the case, I'd be like, oh, well, I'm just so grateful to be working. Thank you so much. That you'd put up with, or you'd feel like you would, and then kind of go, why? But, the, but, but why? But why, you know, why? We don't have to do that to ourselves anymore. Um, it's the joy of being able to know, know that, learn that no is a complete sentence or that you can see pieces of other people's pieces of work and go, with all due respect, that's not something that I feel like I should be contributing to. Um, you just said no is a complete sentence. Did yeah. you make that up or is that an expression because I love it and I want to tattoo it? Well, then I made it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, no, I'm so stealing that. It's going right on my forearm. It's time to see me. Haley at will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also think Lars von Trier hasn't made a good movie in many years, so I, you know, yeah. wouldn't want to see them. But man, some of that stuff from like 10, 15 years ago was amazing. And Dogville, you know, the, those I actually the, the, love Dogville. I think they're inventive and, uh, uh, and you know, really wonderful. I mean, this, the, the, they're the kind of films that for me have been affecting you know I've I've not done many of those sorts of films at all <laughs> um, but it, it, they're I think maybe that the living in those kind of slightly messier worlds is something yeah. like I I like yeah creatively I'm into and I know you got to play a lot of messy characters on stage mm, where mm. there are such great roles for women yeah I was fortunate enough to see you in a view from the bridge which is so interesting because I thought I was an Arthur Miller fan and I didn't know this play Mm. Um, I think in America it's not one that's taught, right? Because yeah. it's it's problematic, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's such a, a beautiful, you know, piece of work. Um, yeah. You earned a Best Actress nomination for the Laurence Olivier Awards for mm -hmm. that one, your first one. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you did Women Beware Women at the Royal National Theatre, Royal Shakespeare Company. Oh, yeah. uh, you're right. Um, <laughs> Royal National Theatre so. was Major Barbara. Ma yes, I did yes. too. I did Man of Mode first and then Major Barbara at the National Theatre, the Olivier stage, yeah. Were you thinking it would be mainly a stage career? Were these the... I was hoping that yeah. it would involve a lot of stage. Mm -hmm. I still do. Um, I did a play earlier this year, having not done a play for five years, which I couldn't believe had been that long. And I'm doing a play later on this year. Um, uh, and and uh, the thing I love about plays is the you are um, uh, it, oh, they're really really hard, <laughs> uh, but you know what's landed and what hasn't. There's no hiding. Oh yeah. So you know a performance can't be 
changed as it can be in the editing suite. You can't, you know, an editor can take your reaction from that take and then the delivery of that line from that, but then cut to that guy because you messed up that line a bit and then come back to you for the end of the speech and make you look amazing. Yeah. Um, not that anyone's ever done that for me, but <laughs> it's possible. Um, but you're, it's very much a director's medium in comparison to stage, which feels very much the writer and the actor's medium. Um, and you get to know where your limitations lie, but also you get to learn how to use props, you know. And I felt that when we did Howard's End, each scene was directed like a play. So the crew left the set and the director, Hetty McDonald, had Kenny Lonergan's script, Ian Forster's book, and we figured out geographically where we wanted to be. So I knew Margaret was restless about something, so I thought, well, I'm going to st stoke the fire over there on that line, flop onto the Shay Long, read a book, can't read the book, put the book down. Helen's going to go and get that shawl over there. Tibby's going to play with the fossil collection over there and then bang a few notes out on the piano, all at the same time as the scene is going on. And what I found that I learn on stage is how to how to use your body, use props that are either, that serve the subtext of the scene. Um, and that also can be completely different to what the words are saying, which mm. is so much more interesting than just reading out exposition and then in your whole body saying what your voice is saying. So I can't quite explain, I'm not very articulate about it, but I just find, um, I actually, one thing I remember on The Duchess that, that's, that Ray Fiennes taught me was, I remember Saul Dib came up to me and said, I think the Duke's, can, can he be angry? Just, yeah, make him angry. And Rafe was like, well, what does that mean? He said, I can show you my anger by the way that I stir sugar into my tea, or the way that I throw a chair across a room, or the way that I don't say anything at all. But how does anger manifest itself? And I thought it was such a, such a fantastic thing to say. Um, and that's what I've done with stage work. I get the opportunity to the arrangement of some flowers over here you know Barbara is in a really foul mood, <laughs> you know, or, you, you, or so much is being said in, uh, in how she, what she's doing upstage when she's not saying anything. Um, and that's something that the theatre allows you to do mm -hmm. because you have to fully inhabit that stage with your, with your body and, um, and with the props and it's just you, you kind of feel feeling so naked. And so you can also know when, you ha when something hasn't landed or you know when you, 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 you set a line and it, and it, it got a laugh, and so now you're just saying it for laughs right. until everyone can tell, so they stop laughing at you, and then you're having to just reel it in a bit. <laughs> um, and then also when things go wrong on stage, I remember at the RSC, I was given this, it was a Jacobean tragedy, Women Beware Women with the late, great Tim, uh, Tim Pickett-Smith and Penelope Wilson. And I walked on stage with this huge kind of dress that was kind of cobwebby. It was like loads of kind of different layers and chiffon. It was all like kind of matted. And she kind of runs through this village in, in the rain in it. And she kind of turns up on, on stage kind of in a bit of a state. And I remember as my first kind of the Civil Shakespeare Company, I was 24 years old. This was, you know, something I'd always wanted to be. Crucible was playing next door. Um, Arthur Miller connect connection. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I walked up on stage and actually it was just before I came on and the actress in the other wing opposite looked down and went, and I was like, oh, I don't, what are you, what, what? And then I had to go on. So I went, I went on and I did a bit. And then I looked down and I'd noticed that as I'd ran out of the dressing room to come down to the stage, my old gym bra <gasps> oh my attached itself. <laughs> to the dress, <laughs> which really undermined my performance. Wow. 
But in that moment, it was go I was going, oh my God, what? And without think, I just picked it up and I used it as if it was a handkerchief in the scene. Wow. Um, I, th I mean, I'm maybe I'm, I, I don't know if who saw that, but it was just that moment of going, that's when character is revealed and you, yes. you see what you're made of, of going, yeah. how do I do that? Or if you dropped a prop on set, on stage, you go, how am I going to incorporate that? We all know what's happened here, but how do I not break that fourth wall? Yeah. And how do I, how do, you know, it happens, so how can I use that? Um, there's lots of kind of moments like that that are that kind of stuck with me of um, kind of quite defining moments, I suppose. I'm trying to think about other ones, but definitely the bra being attached to my dress. Was <laughs> <laughs> Did people definitely. say anything? Do you think they noticed or you so believably played it off? Oh, I think they noticed. Oh, there's, I think they know, but I think but this is also what we love to see. I love it when I see an actor do something, yep. you know, or drop something, whatever, and then they bring it back and they do yeah. something and then you're like, what an amazing recovery. You know, that, you're like, oh my God. It's so much better. It's not that the person falls, it's how they get back yeah. up. That's what we feel is triumphant so you know we love seeing that so I don't mind that I remember actually seeing um, my dear friend Jodie Whittaker who's was in my year at Guildhall who's now going to be the first female Doctor Who in, in the UK um, and she's um, she's in Journeyman with Paddy Considine his new film and it's amazing and um, she was always very good at that and I and she played she was in Pericles at the Shakespeare's Globe with Mark Rylance that was her first job out of what Kittle. yeah you guys and uh, <laughs> and she I know and she and so I went to see it and the day that I went to see it you know summer's day and uh, of course there's no roof in Shakespeare's Globe and she's meant to come up from the sea as this kind of urchin and she gets on stage and she says a line of like Will no one, you know, will no one help me? Will no one save me? And she's saying it to like this ocean and she's on this desert island. And just as she delivered that line, this low flying plane <gasps> comes over the roof of the shape of the globe and it's really, really loud. So she looks up and the whole audience looks up and she goes, Oh, oh God, yes. And she totally incorporated it into it as if they were there to save her. And she got the round this round of applause. Oh, that's hilarious. I was so joyful. Yeah. Just so so those those moments where you, you know, everyone's kind of in on the joke of it. It's so yeah. exciting. By the way, when you did the Duchess, did you tell Ray Fines that you saw him? As a young girl on stage. Well, my mother certainly did. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Um, yeah, I d yeah, I mean, yeah, I did. I kind of, I get really shy about it. Like, yeah. I get very shy when I meet actors who I admire, you know, whose work I admire, because it means so much to me to, to meet them. But also, I, I'd be devastated if they were like, oh, God, you know. Like, I, I'm a, I was, I, when I was a kid, like many, theater, fans. I was a big Rocky Horror fan. And like my love for Tim Curry runs deep. Oh. Now, I also once saw an, saw an interview of him that he did like in the 80s. It's up on YouTube. You know, I like I really go into it when it comes to Rocky Horror. Like I'm like YouTubing <laughs> 80s videos. And there was there was a like an interview where he goes, he goes, well, how do you feel when people talk about you? Like, you know, that's your definitive role of your entire career and stuff. And he goes, well, I, well, I handle it with a bemused tolerance. I thought it was such a great line, but it just meant that I couldn't now ever meet him and tell him I was a fan of that because yeah. I knew I'd be hit with bemused tolerance. Yeah. And um, so I kind of get quite, you know, I get quite quite shy about that sort of thing. Um, but but also I find that actors really love it. You know, actors really, if you've, you know, if they've moved you or if they, and going up and saying, you know, oh, thank you, I love what you did there. It's, for the most part, people are still kind of touched by it, you know? Well, I think especially with theater, because it, it doesn't have access to everyone. 
You can't, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, you can put on the DVD or, you know, turn on the TV or even still go to theaters these days. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, when it's when it's a theater performance and it's that, you know, ephemeral in the moment thing, yeah. he's probably thrilled. Yeah, exactly. It is something. I think also that the thing with theater of going, it's never going to exist again in that moment. Yeah. Like every performance is going to be slightly different. Something's the the atmosphere is going to be different. The audience is going to be different. So it, it really is that, that elusive moment where you think I I was there mm -hmm. um, and I saw I saw the night when this happened. Um, yeah, um, yeah, and I think that's kind yeah. of in a world where we love to record everything nowadays. There's something quite magical about that, having something that will you know, never be seen again. I, was, uh, I went to see a play the night that a woman's cell phone went off and it wouldn't stop, it went on for a really long time and it was uh, Daniel Craig and Hugh Jackman doing a two-hander, oh, Steady wow. Rain, yeah. yeah. And I remember like meeting Daniel Craig and, and telling him, and it was, first of all, it was a great example of he incorporated into the character, because in character, he told her to turn off his phone. Yeah. But it was like, th there's something about like, he's like, oh, that specific night, I could tell you everything about that night. Right, well, yeah. everything is so different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd, we'd had um, people in a view from the bridge, because it's obviously a, a a text it's for GCSE and A level in the UK so there's lots of students that would come in and their reaction to the kiss when Eddie kisses oh, Rodolfo yeah. and you know and, and talking through it and, and phones going off and people eating and you kind of go wow the genera TV generation <laughs> thinks that they can't be heard or seen like, I'm here I can see what you're doing and there's this kind of it's a weird thing it's like yeah. they it's like watching two people on stage you're watching people in the audience when I'm on stage and I can see what they're doing. I'm, I can, I'm very much yeah. there, although I'm obviously in the scene. I remember in Dry Powder, this thing I did it in London this year, there was a, a student and he sat in the front row and he spent the whole time with the text of the play. No. And he was, and he was reading in it, he was going. And you're like, oh God, oh God, oh, he's testing me. Oh no, I've said there, I, you know, and, and, and at one point I just, I kind of kept staring at him going. <laughs> and, and, and every, after each scene, every, all the actors backstage are going, that guy, that guy, it's so inappropriate. And of course he didn't think it, it would be. And, um, and at the curtain call, I just kind of looked at him and I went. <laughs> and I was like. Because it was really distracting, oh and, uh, and, he, and then one of the actors met him on the tube that night afterwards, and the guy was like, "Well, I'd, I I didn't really know the play, and English isn't my first language, so I wanted oh. to follow it." And the guy was like, "I really understand." The actor's like, "I really understand that, but you are on the front row, and we can see you. Yeah. It's a very this isn't this is a relationship like." We're your show, but you're our show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember another woman who like wore it. She brought a duvet. It Wait, was, what? Yeah, she was on the front row and wearing practically wearing a duvet, and like, and at one point got her knitting out. Oh and it was you're like, but then oh, but then I remember when I did the the I think the I did a play and I loved this play so much. Talk about it, the the Pride um, in in London, and it's a very moving, very moving play, and. Um, there was, uh, it, it, uh, I was losing my trail of thought here. There was um, j just so much response to what was happening on within within the audience, and you kind of th that that relationship for me was was just kind of very powerful. We had it was a time when gay marriage had just been legalized in England, but then there was all this controversy that was happening in Russia. 
Um, and there was a protest on um, Whitehall just outside of where we were performing. Um, uh, and they, people were holding these banners to Russia with love on them. And um, the play was very much about a three-hander between a married couple, heterosexual couple, and the wife knows that her husband is gay. And he never comes to terms with it, even though she desperately wants him to so that he can be free. He can't. And they never have the conversation. They never talk about it. And at the end of... Uh, the end of each night, we'd come on and we'd taken banners. My mum had actually taken the banners and given them to us. But we took the banners onto the stage and the curtain called To Russia With Love. And um, there was this uh, lesbian couple from Russia who was sat in the front row. And watching them, watching us, was, was kind of, it was so beautiful and so moving because they held their hands and they were crying through a lot of it. And at the end, they didn't applaud us. They just stood up, they turned to each other and they embraced. Oh. And, uh, and they kind of like, and, and they were comforting each other. And um, it's moments like that where you, you, you go, oh, this, is, this isn't just, this isn't just my job, but I'm doing a play here. Like you're part, part of a conversation that is uh, important to people. Mm -hmm. It can be important to people. And good plays, they, they, you know, they stand the test of time because they're saying something that we can still, as human beings, resonate to now and somehow connect with. And I think, that those moments for me are um, are really really powerful as well. Not just the ones where you get your gym bra stuck in your dress. But just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And obviously, speaking of roles that connect with audiences, uh, the role you might be most associated with right now is Agent Peggy Carter, uh, first in Captain America: The First Avenger. This was the fifth film, I think, in the Marvel universe, and um, it's so interesting to go back and watch them all and see how smart and steady they were from the beginning. Uh, how did you first become aware of this role? And it was at a time when I don't think superhero movies were the norm. I, they might have been no. kind of frowned upon, honestly. Yeah, well, I'd done like, by then, I mean, I'd done mostly adaptations of books and done a lot of stage work. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think I, it was, I got an audition to go to, to, to this. I had never heard of it. I've never read, never read a comic book in my life. Still and, even? Yep. <laughs> um, and I think that probably helped because there wasn't any I pressure. I didn't, I didn't really know. Uh, I live, kind of lived in my own little nerdy world, so I wasn't aware necessarily of the size and of these franchises, which I think is probably kind of useful actually. Um, so I went in prepared as I would for any job, and then um, it was just a round of lots of different auditions. And I remember the last audition was a full day screen test where I was picked up from home at seven in the morning, taken to Shepton Studios, put into hair and makeup, and then had to, I think, learn about eight pages of dialogue. And then they'd employed actors to come in. They'd paid actors to come in just to audition. They, they weren't auditioning for the show. Really? They weren't auditioning for a part in the film. They were paid to audition with me, who was auditioning for the film. It was this whole, and then they had this crew there, and they had the assistant director, and. Uh, they had like a, a link to LA, so LA could watch the whole process and ask me questions. And then I was given 20 minutes to learn an unarmed combat fight sequence. And then they also oh wanted God. me to see how I was loading and unloading guns, if I seemed to be confident enough to know what I was doing. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, then you just go home and go, well, that was an experience. And then <laughs> I think around this time I'd done Pillars of the Earth, or so I was going to do press for that or something. Or Anyway. Um, and then kind of found out I'd, I'd gotten it. And it was, it was great. It was, yeah, it was, of course it was amazing. Um, 
And so began the training, the physical training, <laughs> where the first time I did, I worked with Simon Waterson, who was the, who was Daniel Craig for, I think for the, at least the first Bond's personal trainer. Oh, really? And um, after the first session with him, I turned green, had to go home and threw up and went into bed and couldn't move for like two days. Wow. It was a lot of sort of, you know, high intensity interval training, that sort of thing, which I'm not a fan of. Um, but what I liked about the, I guess, those guys at Marvel, and I still like, otherwise I wouldn't have done, carried on you yeah. know, doing so many. Um, other than that, I like working and it's good to earn money to pay bills. Um, <laughs> but like, like I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna turn it down. Um, no, um, but they were, they're really nerdy. They love the comic book world. Yeah. They're like, and then what's gonna happen? And then, and then they've got it all planned out. They're like children. And so their excitement for it is, is uh, it, it, you know, you it's contagious and, um, they kind of, I think they, they let me do what I want with her. I didn't get much direction. At one point, Joe Johnston was, uh, he, I think he was enjoying the fact that I, I, can, I can do different takes. So he would, we'd get the take and then he'd be like, okay, do something else. And I'll do something else. And you could tell he was enjoying the fact yeah. that I, as a trained actor, had learned how to do multiple different choices and different deliveries from which he could then use and decide what he wanted later. And that was really fun. Um, and, and, and so I felt, I didn't feel uh, like I was kind of a pawn in something that was too scary, scary mm -hmm. or intimidating. And I think what I'm most grateful for now, because it's been, like you said, it has been something that has had a kind of a commercial um, platform and therefore, especially with younger, younger yeah. fans, it's been the character that, that they've most associated with me, um, is that she's not, over-sexualized or she's not kind of dark and broken because she does follow me around quite a bit when I meet someone who loves Peggy or talks to me like I am Peggy. Um, <laughs> you know, and if she was, if she was a character that, you know, it, it, she's, a, she's a wholesome character mm -hmm. and uh, a character that's very current despite the fact it's set in the 40s. Um, and that's, that's, that's really, I feel very fortunate about that. So I'm allowed, to, I like talking, I don't mind talking about her. Um, it's not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I swear only 12 more questions about her and then we'll move on. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, I went, one thing I will say though is that I, during Dry Powder, this, you know, the, we got nominated for a Best New Comedy at the Olivier Awards. It had critical acclaim. We got like five stars across the board. It was a comedy. It was modern. I yeah. got to do a modern play. Um, I play a sociopath. It was so much fun. She would say things like, it's, it's not my fault that you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and she would, or she would go, one, one of the lines would be, allow less intelligent people to hate you. It is their destiny. <laughs> and it costs you nothing. <laughs> we had all these great one-liners. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we do, we do, I remember uh, one night coming out of the stage door and a guy coming up to me going, hi, uh, well done. Anyway, so um, uh, the uh, Infinity Stones. Um, <laughs> what I'm thinking is, uh, because now Thanos, and I'm going, Hold it one second. What are you talking about? No context for what, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, because of, and then, and then it took me, and he's like, well, you know, are you going to be in it? And it took me a while to know what he was talking about. I've never yeah. heard of Infinity Stones. I hate to say really? it. I don't know what they are. I don't read comic books. And I, you know, and I wouldn't have been told anyway, because yeah. Marvel keep everything so secret. And I was sitting there going like, I'm just come off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I gave it my all. <laughs> and here we are talking about something I know nothing about. But by the end of it, you could see his face dropping. He was like, Aww. 
Oh, oh you really know nothing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Yeah. So you can't name the Infinity Stones? I don't even know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> are they like diamonds? Are they like jewel? Are they well? You know, I power, see yeah. power. power. Yeah. Okay. We, we should talk about something else. Yeah. I, I'm not going to be because I'm showing my ignorance. No, I I call them jewels, but then boys get upset with me. Um, <laughs> they're apparently very powerful stones. Right. They're Excellent. jewels. They're jewels and a pretty bracelet. That's pretty. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but why do you think this character resonated with so much? With resonated so much with people. Um, I love. There's a, a quote. I believe you said quoting another quote. Um, sort of the Ginger Rogers thing. Yeah, yeah. Where she has to do everything yeah. Captain America does backwards in heels. Yeah, yeah. I stole that from her because I thought, oh, that's great. That's Perfect. really help, helpful because I was feeling like I wanted to have some sense of ownership of who she was because this was Captain America, a big kind of commercial franchise, and I didn't want to feel too lost or too invisible in that world, I think. So I just made her very strong, very self-contained. And I kind of thought, well, if I can bring out some sort of quality where you believe that she really loved early Steve, that she saw um, that his 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 frustrations about his limitations of being taken seriously as a soldier um, is something she could relate to being a woman. That was considered yeah. her disability. Um, and from that was able to, for me, be able to then approach it, not like I'm in a superhero film, but into having some sort of emotional connection to him and some sort of truth in it. And then I think as it developed and in the series, she was given that line, I know my value, everyone else's opinion doesn't really matter, um, was something that a lot of people kind of yeah. really like, it stuck with. Uh, and you know, so I've met people at conventions who, name their children Peggy or have been like my face on their forearm and they're like permanent tattoo I'm like that is insane <laughs> but I'm still quoting like, you on my, my own mother doesn't like me that much like, <laughs> I don't even like myself that much like I what do you do um yeah and it's lovely and, and I suppose you f like I feel with any character you play as an actor you're you are for that time a custodian of that character and if people are connecting they're connecting to her they're not connecting to me they're connecting to something they see in her that they share or that they desire. Um, and that, that separation is, in, is important, I think. Uh, when I talk about characters or when I'm rehearsing, I, t I tend to do this thing that which Mike Lee does, which is to talk about your character, not in the first person, but to always make them objective. So they're sitting outside of yourself. Oh, interesting. So you help build who they are rather than reduce it to who you are and going, I just don't feel that I would Mike, I would do that. My characters wouldn't do that. And just going that, you know, you're, or, or kind of yeah. mumbling in a naturalistic way thinking, well, that's acting. And um, it, it's kind of, it's, but making it something that exists outside of you, then also it creates a healthy, boundary, I suppose, when you're meeting people who are so connected to that work, but you're going, but they're connected to the character. Mm -hmm. They don't, it's not, it's it's qualities that I've brought to this character, but it's essentially that character is for them, that story is for them. And once it's, once, you know, I've finished a job, it's not mine anymore. It's for the audience to do what they want with. Uh, one question I promise from the audience about Peggy. Uh, Matt Marr? Oh, that's me. Hey. Um, do you have a tattoo? <laughs> I thought you I really? recognized you. <laughs> and I'll, I'll warn there's a spoiler alert, um, but it seems that Agent Carter has gone from the Marvel Universe. <clears throat> what was the process like saying goodbye to her? Or have we seen, will we see her again? Would she just, I wish she would just be left to rest in peace. She died, <laughs> didn't she? Um, uh, 
I don't really... <laughs> A character that will never die. <laughs> I love her, of course. I'm very happy, very grateful to her. But I think it's it's um, you know one thing that I wanted, uh, you know, I really wanted variety. It's why I go back and do plays. Is I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. Um, I don't, there's no creativity in that. There's no life in that. Um, and who I was a year ago, luckily, is not who I am today. Like, I'm changing, I'm evolving, I'm growing. I think we get more interesting as time goes by. We have more experience behind us. We've, we, get, we know a little bit about what we're doing and maybe can make some more creative choices. And I, I want the challenges of it. Like, I'm um, doing Measure for Measure later on this oh, year. And that's really, that's so new. I've never done anything like that before. Um, and I'm about to play a plantation owner in 18th century Jamaica who is the opposite of everything I stand for. Um, and that to me is like, that's where, that's where I start to kind of, you know, my heart starts to race a little bit. Rather than revisiting something I've already done that was considered loved and popular for the sake of, because it's being popular. You know, it just, it's, it's I don't want to take away from, uh, you know, the amazing opportunities that I was given to play her and knowing that it, it you know, a lot of people like her is wonderful, but you know, as in, I want the right to be able to play horrid people, <laughs> and you know, and completely different people to my own, um, and to create that range and that and that and stretch myself and do jobs that I think I can't do. That's when I know that um, I want something. Is mm. when I think it's impossible and I can't do it, and I go, oh, well, now we have to. It's a bit like when anyone, uh, like uh, I remember someone challenging I hate sharks like I was really scared of sharks but as soon as someone just went well will you well I'm actually booking shark diving on the weekend but you're too you're too yeah. scared to come I'm like well now I have to come because it no the you don't possible opportunity <laughs> that's my that's my slightly masochistic thing of going like well I'm gonna have to play that part because I think it's impossible I think I'm commit social suicide it'll be the end of my career of course I'm gonna take it um that's kind of the weird you know, the weird psychology. Did you go shark diving? I certainly did. Oh my God. No. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, but the, the thing that I'm doing later on, later on this year, so Measure for Measure will be in the West End, but here's a cool thing. Josie Rourke, who's the artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse, um, who's just directed her first film, Mary, Queen of Scots, with Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan, and she's this real powerhouse of a director. She has uh, adapted Measure for Measure. And she talks about it, as many people do, as being a problem play, because it's, it's not a comedy, but it's described as kind of a comedy. Um, and it's, it's, she kind of describes it as like Shakespeare was getting some really great stuff going, and mm -hmm. then kind of went, and at the end went, oh, I don't know what, oh, uh, let's just tidy this up and backtrack and go out again. And kind of, it, it's some elements of it, I think, are very unsatisfying um, for scholars and for audience members. So what she did is she, she called me, she went, I've just cut the problem out of it. <laughs> and so, but here's what she's done. It's, it runs for an hour, set in 1604, original text, but it's just heavily the main plot of Angelo and the novice nun, Isabella. Then we have the interval, and then the audience come back, and we start the play again, but in modern day, and now I'm Angelo, <gasps> and he's a no novice way. monk. So it's a gender flip. Um, and it means that we... Same language? Same language. And wow. we, it just means that Jack Loudon and I are going to be learning each other's parts. Wow. <laughs> and I'm going to be, I'll say to him day one, I'm like, I'm going to steal anything. <laughs> <laughs>
And they're like, feel free to take anything of mine. I've got plenty, and I've got abundance of creativity and choices in there. So, of course, he'd be like, ah, oh, no, I think I'm good. I think we just. We don't say stealing, we say paying homage. Paying homage. Yes, yes. I will pay homage. I actually love that play. So, this is really Great, exciting. Yeah. Um, but I, I do recognize the problems in it. Um, one thing that is not a problem script is Howard's End. Hmm. This is such a beautiful book by Ian Forrester. It was previously made into a movie with your old friend Emma Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. Did you talk to her about I did, playing yeah. the role? She did a typical M thing, which is, God, don't watch what I did. You are she and she is you. Um, <laughs> uh, and she said, if you want to read lots of books on physics. There you go. She said they're so bright, the Schlegel sisters, yeah. and their their minds are constantly working, and they're ahead of ahead of everyone in the room. So just make sure that you're very active in what you're doing. Um, so I just played a lot of heads up. Actually, I didn't read any physics books, but um, what I loved about that was that you have Kenny Lonergan, oh, and I just amazing. seen Manchester by the Sea, who had said, "I don't want to adapt Howard's End." Here are all the reasons why. And Colin Callender, the producer the, who runs Playground, went, they are all the reasons why you should. And um, it just meant that he wasn't reverential or nostalgic or romantic or idealistic about that world and what England looked like. You know, he was he had problems with the, the narrative, um, which was great because he was going to work them out. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's 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 such a beautiful piece of work, I think, because um, what Kenny's been able to do with it, he, he would write it like almost a musical score. So you'd have five characters speaking at the same time, as we do when we, you know, we overlap our loved ones and we finish each other's sentences and that's, that's a, you know, a display, an expression of intimacy. We know each other that well, that's what we can do. Um, uh, or that we feel comfortable enough with each other, we'd have to be polite to wait to each other to finish. Like it's, it's all these little characteristics that exist within how families um, relate to each other. And he would write out kind of each character in columns with slashes of when each other were coming in. So there was one scene where we, 11 pages where we were uh, five characters speaking over each other in this wow. kind of like frisson. And it sounded like a, an orchestra, you know, like an oboe doing something funky over there while cello is just in the background doing that and then the saxophonist kind of does. And you're having to play your own parts knowing that you've got to time it right so that you will finish it this bit. It's all kind of geared towards um, understanding the rhythm very much I'm not comparing him to Shakespeare, you can't do that, but you know, the way that Shakespeare's iambic pentameter teaches you how to say it, because there is a very definite rhythm, and the breaks in the rhythm are telling you something about where the character's at. Same thing with Kelly. There's, there's no fat on the script. Everything is there for a reason. And honoring that, even when, you know, Hetty McDonald, the director, would come up to me and say, um, he's written a comma there, so should we honor that? <laughs> and I go, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna honor it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna honor the shit out of that comma. <laughs> Roll those cameras. Watch this. And I, and I, but it was, it was true. Once you kind of, rather than reducing it to the way that I spoke, with the inflection always being there, you realize that what Margaret was doing would be kind of going up in there and coming back down, and then coming over here again, and then actually coming full circle and being here. And um, all this, and, and that created each character had a different rhythm of speaking, which was true to them. Um, and that level of specificity meant that there was no time for kind of stiff, stiff period drama acting. We'd done this thing where we 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 found all these photographs um, in this archive. This guy had of Edwardian, particularly women, 
slightly blurred photographs, because obviously back then they'd had to remain still for a long time in order to get a focused shot. And, and you think, or oh, maybe did we then see these photos and just imagine that people just were like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of staring wistfully out into landscapes and dreaming and stuff. And, uh, and that we, didn't, we weren't aware that they moved, really. Yeah, yeah. And so having these blurred pictures of women striding down the street, books in hand, cigarettes, laughing, joking, arm in arm, hands behind their heads, even though they had a corset, and you think, oh, they, can actually, they could actually move quite well. And seeing, seeing them running, and, and it just meant that we wanted to breathe as much life into it as possible. So it just happened to be the period was the backdrop, but that there were very human characters in that. Um, and that's kind of what we set out to do. And I think it helped that, like I said before, Hetty would rehearse each scene like a play. Mm -hmm. So we'd physically figure out what we wanted to do. And we had the art department say, what in the book do you know that your character really likes that you want us to put into these scenes, into your drawing room, into the living room? So I said, well, Margaret is all about letters. So let's have lots of letters and books and stationery. And so, of course, you'd open up Margaret's prop desk and there'd be letters in there and you'd open up the letters and you'd realize that the art department had written they actually written letters like between Aunt Julie and Tibby and and it was all all the detail was in there and then you had um Helen played by Pippa Coulthard wanting you know sh beautiful kind of shawls and watercolors that was very Helen and kind of romance and kind of floaty numbers and then you had Tibby played by Alex Lauder who wanted his fossil collection and so you're able to kind of inhabit these worlds rather than turn up, say your mark, in a naturalistic kind of cool way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's acting, and then you can go home. Um, you got, you had to, the, the, it, the work is so rich yeah. and it's better than you. That's the other thing that I think I, why, why I go, why I probably end up why I do cost, costume dramas, because they're based on a book or they're based on something that, so there was a literary interest there. So the, the writing is revered and the stage work, the writing is revered. And so um, it's better than me. So, and, and therefore it challenges me to go to it rather than just kind of like reduce the acting to just, you know, that sort of back-footedness. Um, of just kind of saying it in a naturalistic way. I don't, I don't, I don't want, like to work like that. I want to see something and go, how do I get to that? How do I get to Margaret Schlegel? What's going on with Therese Rakan that she can do that? Where, why is, where is, how is Hedda trapped? What does that look like? What does it feel like? How does that manifest in the way that she walks around a table to get to her cup of tea? You know, those things that are, um, if they're on the page, then they stimulate my mind to ask all these questions. And then I'm not thinking about my performance or trying to reduce it to who I am. Um, it's making me, taking me out of myself and walking towards it and walking towards something that is a craft, you know? Margaret also feels like a very modern character, even in yeah, a story that's told quite a ways a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. She just, she feels she, very modern and current. Bit of an original thinker, given the fact yeah. that she wasn't, she wouldn't have, she'd been self-educated yeah. and she didn't, didn't have rights we share today. But um, one thing I quite, I loved about her is I, she, she has this at the beginning, this, this friendship, this, this kinship with this woman, Ruth Wilcox, and they don't quite understand why they mm -hmm. like each other, but they just do, because they're so different. And at one point, you know, she, Margaret, she's a liberal, she's, you know, fights for women's suffrage and she's, uh, intellectual and she lives in the world of ideas and philosophy and social reform and um, Ruth Wilcox in at lunch goes well I'm just relieved that women don't have the vote I think we should leave that up to the men and um, you see kind of Margaret kind of going what 
<laughs> and um, and you think, oh well, then that's the end of that relationship. Then clearly, or they're going to have a fight or something. And they, uh, but they turn towards each other. They're fascinated with each other's differences. What I loved about Margaret is that the you know the, the whole tagline of the the book, you know, it's in the, it's in the the title kind of page, and it's something she says later is only connect. And what Margaret does so brilliantly is the start when someone disagrees with her her sit, her values her opinions her ideas that is the beginning of her mm. conversation and a relationship not the end of one and i think we live now today i see it and i myself am guilty of it where living in our kind of righteous memes and statements and sound bites and being you know people being having extreme views and being very black and white and and kind of you know fearful of having our point of view being attacked in any way um, that that it just means that we're we're disengaging from each other, and Margaret would kind of sit there and want to have a chat with a staunch yeah. Republican. I would be really fascinated to know what they think about stuff. That is very modern. I'm not going to get controversial, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like yeah. you know, and I think, and I was like, oh, I love her for that. Yeah. I think that's yeah. really cool. She's oh, I, expansive. I yeah. yeah. Uh, we're almost out of time, but um, there's one question that keeps coming up a lot, um, and it's not, what's your favorite Infinity Stone? Um, <laughs> it, Emerald. <laughs> I think that's power? Time. Time. Damn it! <laughs> I should know that one. Which we're running out of. Yes. So. <laughs> look, yeah. at, look at how beautiful that comes back. Uh, no, uh, people want to know if there's a role you're dying to play. <gasps> yes. yes. I want to play Iago. <gasps> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I think uh, there are ways to do it where you don't change the language that much, but it's absolutely plausible that Iago could be a yeah. woman. He, one of the first lines he says, and, and by my troth, I'm as good as any, any man. And you know, she, he, feels, he feels that he should have been promoted and it was his place, but yes. you know, he's, he's not, and that leads to his own resentment. You know. I know what that's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think also his love for Othello could be could be her love for Othello, you know. This, this, I mean, that's, I haven't thought about it too much, but it's simplistic. But I'd love <laughs> to play. I'd love to play those roles. Um, yeah, I, mean, I love I'd, that I'd love idea. Bash at all the classics, really. Yeah. That's the the impossible ones. Yeah, you'll get to them eventually. But first up, Measure for Measure. Yes. Yes. Which can you tell us when that starts? Yes. Why so rehearse end of August and it opens twenty. 24th of September and goes on till the end of November. That's my birthday. Well, well it's meant to be. Got yeah, to clearly, clearly. <laughs> That's how I'll celebrate. <laughs> um, well, again, I want to congratulate you on such a fantastic career. And please, if you haven't seen Howard's End, I assume you have, um, you can watch it on Stars still or on the BBC app, I believe. Um, but it's fantastic. Thank you Thank so much you. for being here. Thank That's you guys for being a great audience. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.